Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Oh, 3? Oh, chapter 3. Chapter 3, 1 through 5. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he had said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat every tree from every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of this tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die, for God knows that the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The song set chosen for today was very purposeful focusing on the goodness of God and the perfect love of God and everything good about God because, and we're going to end in the same way with our last song as well. I'm encapsulating the message with the goodness of God because this message is going to be a lot about Satan and his strategy and the evil that he's trying to perpetrate. And we we want to make sure that our focus and our heart is always on God and the goodness of God. And with that in mind, I want to just have a word of prayer before we start. Father, thank you for your power. Thank you for the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. And Father, we don't want, you don't want us to be dwelling on the enemy and, and his, all of his tactics, but we need to understand his strategy, and we need to understand him to a certain degree. But Father, with that, as we are shining a light on the strategy and the evil of the evil one, Father, I just claim the covering of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ upon us and upon our minds and upon our hearts, and I would uh, just refuse any, any attempt of the enemy that would try to come in, try to confuse, try to uh, get, get our minds off of something else. But Father, we want your name to be glory, uh, glorified this morning. We want your truth to be preached, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Did God really say you can't have any fun? And why is God so limiting and restrictive and narrow-minded? Well, before we get into our passage here today in that particular topic, I do want to just wrap up the thought from last week on where evil came from. We concluded that evil is not a thing to be created. It wasn't created, but rather it's a condition that exists when a person or a group of people reject God's goodness and uh, his holy moral nature. Therefore, evil exists because there's a lack of righteousness. So evil actually came into existence initially when Satan rebelled against God and then came into existence in this perfect world that God created by the rebellion of Eve and then Adam. But let's go back one more step before that and ask the question, when God created our world, why did he even allow the possibility of evil? I mean, it's got to be his fault, right? Why did God even put or allow the serpent in the Garden of Eden uh, Eden, even to tempt Eve? Well, the simple answer, and I like simple because I can do simple and I don't understand all the sovereignty of God. But simply put, 
God put the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden in order to give mankind free will. We love having our free will. You remember that he also put the tree of life there in the garden as well. And we established last week that God is good and only good. And part of that goodness is that he is love. Scripture tells us that straight up. So God created us out of love and he wants to have a relationship with his creatures. He wants to have a relationship with us. And he wants us to love him. However, love is a choice. Love is always a choice. One cannot be forced to love someone. So God put a choice in the Garden of Eden in order to keep the relationship honest, if you will. Because if God didn't give man a choice to love God or not, that relationship would become one of tyranny. We would be forced to love or not given a choice about whether we can love or not love. And that's not love. But by placing the tree in the midst of the garden, God basically told mankind, I love you and I want you to love me, but it's your choice to stay in this place of paradise or not. That was a gift that he gave us as human beings. Whenever there is a choice, there is potential for evil. And to disobey God was to initiate evil. Now last week we said that God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth, right? And in Revelation it says there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things will be passed away. So here's a question. Why couldn't he just have done that in the beginning? Why wait until the end? Because we have to make the choice to love Him. God wants true love reciprocated. Well, you may say, well, in the new paradise, in new heaven and earth, we won't have a choice, so why is that any different? Why would that not be tyranny? Because we've already made the choice for Him. That choice isn't going to change. We don't have to remake the choice. Everyone who will be in heaven will already have made the choice to love God and love Him forever because that's a choice we've already made. In John 3.18 it says, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. That's our choice to love Him forever, to believe in Him. But whoever does not believe, that's the choice not to love Him stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. See, they stand condemned already because they have chosen not to love Him. But listen, God also put that tree of life there in the garden, which would then allow them to live forever. But when they sinned, God banned them from the garden so they could not go to that tree of life. Genesis 3.24 tells us after he drove the man out, he placed at the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And you might think, what a horrible thing to do. Why would God do that? You ever thought about that? Folks, that was an act of grace. That was an act of mercy. 
He did it because I believe if they had eaten of the tree of life after committing sin, they would have lived forever in eternity in their sin. And they wouldn't have had the possibility of salvation. So God, in His love for rebellious mankind, did not want the consequence to be that severe. But folks, do you realize that because of God's great love, He brought back that tree of life? It's true. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, gave us a tree of life made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, Genesis 3, it is by grace you have been saved. Jesus Christ is the new tree of life. I am the way, the truth, and what? The life. That's that tree of life. That concept boggled my mind. I'd never really thought about it like that before. So why, why did the tree of life the second time around work? if it wouldn't work the first time. Because there was a price that had to be paid for sin. And Jesus had to pay that on the cross. That's why the life in Christ works. So again, going back to what we know, we know that God is good. We know that God loves us. We know that God created us out of love. We know that God wants the best for us, only good. We know that God wants us to attain salvation and eternal life, and we know that we have a choice to love God or to fall away from Him. For love to truly exist, it must be free. It must be freely given, it must be freely received, and it must be reciprocal between both parties. God could have created us as robots and androids with artificial intelligence, but that wouldn't have been true love. So, did God create evil? No. But He did create the conditions for evil to exist. But He did it to allow a greater good, which is the free love that is experienced between the lover, God, and the beloved, us. And the spirit of love between the two. And there's nothing greater than that. And that's exactly what Satan was trying to destroy. The passage we've been focusing on for the past couple of weeks here is the saddest and most tragic event in all of history. All problems, personal, environmental, all that is wrong, evil, immoral, incomplete, all that is decaying, all that is inferior, all failure, all disappointment and and weakness, all sadness and sorrow and pain and disillusionment and trouble and discomfort and remorse, regret, conflict, all hate, jealousy, envy, bitterness, vengeance, fear, crime, selfishness, all confusion, lies, deception, error, intimidation, manipulation, deviation, distortion, Everything that fails to be as perfect as God came from that one event. This then is a monumental event. It truly defines life in our universe. It's a reason for all imperfection and death, and we need to understand that. And rather than blaming and being angry at God, 
because that's misplaced anger and blame. Our anger and animosity should be against Satan who only comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Last week we began by looking at the serpent and we called him the seducer. Satan himself, the adversary of God, the adversary of men, and only hates both God and mankind. And Satan has one objective in mind. He is the evil seducer whose one goal is to seduce Eve and Adam into sin. He wants to entice their disobedience to God, and he wants to corrupt God's good creation. Today we want to look at his strategy, the strategy, and next week we'll be considering the seduction. But The strategy unfolds in the middle of verse 1 down through the end of verse 5, which Evan read for us this morning. The seducer is Satan, and the strategy is lies and deception. What Satan needs to do here is to, to achieve the results he wants is to create a lie that Eve will believe. He has to deceive her. That's why Jesus in John 8, 48, uh, 44, excuse me, called Satan the father of lies. And he lies about two things. One, he lies about the character of God, and he lies about the word of God. And he has never stopped. Those are the same lies that he continues to perpetuate today. Folks, if we understand that, then we understand that his strategy is basically very simple. But the problem is, and this is what we fall for, he masquerades as an angel of light, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians. He wants us to believe that he's telling the truth. This is a new revelation. And that God, the God of the Bible, he's a liar. That's his strategy. So many people, including Christians, and many pastors have fallen for that lie. There's an article in the Christian Post just this past week reported a shocking survey that finds only half of evangelical pastors hold a biblical worldview. The article came out last Sunday, um, and it says it was in what researchers describe as a shocking find A new report from the Cultural Research Center, CRC, at Arizona Christian University indicated just over half of all U.S. pastors of evangelical churches, only 51%, have a biblical worldview. And we'll explain that in a a moment. This study released Tuesday, so the week ago Tuesday, of last week builds on an earlier report from CRC's American Worldview Inventory 2022, which showed that only 37% of Christian pastors in general bring a biblical worldview with them to their pulpits. So what's a biblical worldview? A biblical worldview is an overarching view of the world based on God's revealed truth, the Bible, which directs our life in this world, and it shapes our belief about God, to whom or what do we ultimately answer, about creation, um, what comprises reality, 
humanity, who am I and how did I get here? Moral order, how do I determine right and wrong? And purpose, is there a reason and purpose for my existence? A biblical worldview elevates God's opinion above all others, seeing it as the very definition of truth. The Bible guides us, not our culture. So if only 51% of evangelical pastors and 37% of pastors in general hold that view... It's no wonder in many instances that the church has gone off the rails and has often become ineffective and irrelevant because they are being guided by the culture. And if Satan can get us to believe that the character of God can't be trusted and therefore the Word of God can't be trusted, but he, Satan, can, then he's accomplished his goal. And that's basically what he did with Eve. He got her to doubt the character of God, doubt the word of God, and to believe Satan. And that's exactly what he does in the world and tries to do even in your life and mine. And that's why Scripture tells us that we need to make every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Every thought, all worldly wisdom, all worldly knowledge must become Uh, must be made obedient to Christ. What does that mean? It must come into alignment with God's Word. Otherwise, it's wrong. It's basically that simple. You know, the only thing that Satan is consistent in is lying. He's a father of lies. That's all he can do. He can't help it. But in the lying, he can be very subtle and very smooth. We find Satan approaching Eve, passing him, himself off kind of a neutral observer, neutral bystander, just making some observations here, asking a very innocuous question of Eve. But then he moves from being an innocent observer to convincing Eve that he really is the one who really has her well-being in mind. And that if he can get her to follow him, she will reach great heights of bliss and blessing that that God would like to deprive her of. He basically tells Eve that he, he knows more than God knows, and he also knows things about God that Eve doesn't know, because God doesn't want her to know. And if she did know, she'd be very disappointed in God. He gets Eve to lower her view of God and then to disbelieve God's word and to believe him. Do you realize what he accomplished when he accomplished that? In the garden, he told the first lie. And in the garden, he killed Adam and Eve and all of mankind. From the beginning, he is a liar and murderer. That's what Jesus was referring to. In John 8.44, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. Genesis 3, that's when it happened. Not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and a father of liars. So let's follow his strategy here this morning. Let's go go to verse uh, 1. In the middle of verse 1, it starts there. He says to the woman, Did God really say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden. 
Eve kind of falls rather innocently into a conversation with the seducer here, and we find the strategy is progressively deceptive as we go through. It begins with what appears to be a very innocuous question, just by interested bystander, just making an observation. Here's just an animal in the garden, like a lot of other animals, except it talks. And this animal comes up and says, hey, Eve, did, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, this, this, by the way, was the first question in the Bible. Up to this point, there were only answers. <laughs> there, there, there weren't any dilemmas because there was no one there to bring up any kind of dilemmas. And the question is designed to start Eve on a dangerous path of questioning God. A path that leads from questioning God to doubting God to distrusting God that ends in disobedience to God. Now this is very subtle to Eve and she doesn't catch the nuance here. So Eve, did God actually say that you can't eat from any or every tree there in the garden? Seriously? He really said that? One commentator wrote, the most deadly spiritual force ever released was by that question released into the world, and it is this deadly force. The assumption, listen carefully, the assumption that what God said is subject to our judgment, our evaluation, and our assessment. Think about that. That's the issue, isn't it? That's what launches this entire attack. Hey, Eve, let's talk about what God said. How do you feel about that? Listen, all temptation, all temptation starts with the idea that we have a right to evaluate what God has said or required and that it is subject to my judgment. By the way, the fact that he says, Satan says, did God, just using that word God, did God really say is a dead giveaway here. Once you get past the original creation in Genesis chapter 1, I want you to notice something from chapter 2 onward. In verse 4, it refers in Hebrew to Yahweh Elohim, Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. Verse 5, Lord God. Verse 7, Lord God. Verse 8, Lord God. Verse 9, Lord God. Verse 18, Lord God. Verse 19, Lord God. Verse 21, 22, Lord God. You get into chapter 1, beginning of verse 1, Lord God. And then you jump down to verse 8 in chapter 3, and the Lord God is walking in the garden. The Lord God calling to the man in verse 9. The Lord God saying to the serpent in verse 14. Verse 21, the Lord God made garments. Verse 22, the Lord God said in verse 23, the Lord God, okay, pastor, get it. I got it. I got it. Why is that important? The word Lord is what puts the emphasis on his sovereignty. And that's the word Satan wants to leave out. Because if there's anything he hates, it's the sovereignty of God. He will not acknowledge him as Yahweh, Lord, as Yahweh, the eternal I Am. He just calls him Elohim, which is just a generic word for God. 
And he drops the term Lord because he will not affirm his sovereignty. It's that sovereignty that he tried to overthrow in his rebellion. It's that sovereignty that got him thrown out of heaven with a third of the angels. So he starts out by demeaning the Lord God to Eve just by saying, God. You know, God. And then he uses God's words. Satan knows what God's words are. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? See, Satan uses all the words that God actually said. It's just a slight rearranging of word order. Back in chapter 2, verse 16, God said, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So he starts by simply bringing up a fact. Satan does here. He knows what God actually said, but he casts doubt on it and misinterprets it and makes it subject to her judgment. Has God really said... You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Any tree you want? Has God actually put some limitations on you? Seriously? He did that? How horrible. Satan reverses the emphasis. You can't eat from any tree you want in the garden. Satan emphasizes and exaggerates what she can't do. Has God actually put some limitations? Whereas God emphasizes all that they can do, all that is beneficial, all that is good for them. And this way, he focuses Eve's attention on the prohibition, and in doing that, sets her up to question and to judge and to evaluate God and His Word. The same thing happens today. What do people focus on when they think of God or the church Christianity. All the things you can't do. All the fun you can't have. And the conclusion they hold to is that you've got no freedom. All the freedom is out there, outside of the church, outside of Christianity. And the tone here is, Eve, doesn't it strike you as strange that God has restricted you? Do you question that? Let's have a conversation about that. And the further implication is that there's something in God that wants to deprive you of some great delight. There's something in God's character and His nature that makes Him want to limit you. He wants to steal your joy. He wants to take away your complete freedom. It's a concept of God being the cosmic killjoy. There's some pleasure out there that God is being needlessly restrictive about. It's very narrow-minded of God. He's being way too strict. He's way too controlling. And the subtlety of Satan's question as it settles into the mind of Eve is that she's going to start thinking, huh, I never thought about that before. But it is strange. Why, Why would he do that? Satan is subtly suggesting that he, Satan, is more devoted to Eve's best interests than God is. Because he's not restrictive. He's pro-freedom. God's pro-bondage, 
narrow, and exclusive. And the fact that God gave them everything good in the garden to eat, absolutely everything that was good, is all set aside as trivial and unimportant. Satan doesn't want to talk about that. Nothing to see over here. He wants to go right to that one tree, and he wants to paint a picture in her mind that this is a serious, unacceptable restriction that casts suspicion on God's goodness. Now, Eve, she doesn't understand, perhaps, what's really happening here or who she's dealing with. She just thinks, you know, she's having this conversation with this fascinating reptile who's talking to her. And verse 2 says, The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. I find it interesting that she actually corrected Satan's statement to a certain degree, but she left out God's word all which indicates doubt is already creeping into her thinking. Red flags should have been going off in her her mind, but instead she allowed the conversation to continue. She kind of thought that this creature was just somebody who really had her interests in mind, and, and he just wanted to have her enjoy everything and enjoy true freedom. Folks, we so often fall into that same trap. The same snare of entering into conversation with the enemy. We begin listening to the lies and we allow ourselves to begin contemplating and to begin reasoning with him and with the lies. And as we do that, what, what, what takes place? We, we begin, it begins to sound reasonable. Why do we do that? Because so often believers don't understand the schemes and strategies of the enemy. They may not know really the truth of God's word and or not willing to stand on that truth. And so those subtle lies start becoming reasonable. Sounds logical. But that's why we are told to take every, th- every thought captive, to make it obedient to Christ. Every thought. That's why we are told to submit to God. Part of that submission is to know and stand on God's word and stand on it strongly. And then... With that, we can resist the devil. And we're told to resist the devil, not enter into conversation with him. But just like us, Eve should have known better. She knew enough that she could have stopped Satan at that point and refused to listen. She had enough advantages to, uh, to do that. Number one, she knew God. Verse 8 in that same chapter, after the whole temptation thing, is, is, it's a fascinating verse. It says, then the man and his wife heard the sound of God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Isn't that cool? <laughs> God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from God, the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? This indicates to me that this was a norm- normal regular, perhaps daily event that took place there in the garden. Talk about a close personal relationship with God. Just walking together and talking in the cool of the evening. She knew God. She knew that God was good and that He cared for her and that He had given them everything they could need for uh, or want for pleasure and delight and satisfaction and fulfillment And she had experienced personally in her life, all around her, the goodness of God. It was everywhere. 
She knew enough to say, stop, I will not question the goodness of God. I will not question his kindness to me. I know God. But she didn't. Instead, she listened and believed the lie. And just like Eve, when Satan comes to us and says, what kind of a God do you worship? He's just this cosmic killjoy. He doesn't want you to have any fun. Our immediate response should be, stop, get behind me, Satan. That's not the God I know. Not only did Eve know the character of God, not only did she know God personally, she had experienced the goodness of God, but she also had a very clear command from God. A Bible commentator excuse me, by the name of H.C. Leopold wrote this, We strongly maintain that the taking of the fruit was not the fall into sin. The fall occurred before that act. The taking of the fruit was an incidental bit of evidence of the fact that man had already fallen. However, he writes, the fall as such was nothing less in character than an entirely inexcusable piece of rebellion against a very gracious father who not only had withheld nothing good from man, but had even bestowed such an overwhelming wealth of good things that revolt against such a one must, in the very nature of the case, be a sin of the deepest hue. You know what the sin was? Sin was not the act of eating the fruit. The sin was believing the lie. It was a moment that she believed God was not completely good and that God had restricted her from something good. Believing that lie plunged the human race into depravity. And she bought it. It's the same concept Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. His teaching wasn't anything actually new when he said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Already done. Done deal. The sin is committed in the heart. The actions follow. The other aspect of the subtleness of Satan's question was that he switched the wrongness. He switched the wrongness. You see, God had given them 999 good things, just to pick a number out. But there's only one thing that will hurt. Don't eat it. The stove is hot. Don't touch it. And by his question, Satan switched the wrongness of the act by basically telling Eve, there's nothing wrong in eating the fruit. What's wrong is that God says you can't. That's a horrible thing, and you need to rebel against it. Satan is still doing that in our society today tenfold. There's nothing wrong with multiple sexual orientations. Men with men, women with men, women, men to women, women to men. What's wrong, this is Satan's lie, what's wrong is that God says it's wrong. And you need to rebel against that. Did you know that 100,000 of our young people in this country died of fentanyl overdose this past year? 100,000. Look at these posters. Ben alluded to one last week in the New York subway system promoting the use of opioids and fentanyl. 
Prevent opioid overdose. How? Avoid using alone. Seriously? Then in a little tiny circle that they know no one's going to pay attention to, uh, they write, the best way to prevent overdose is to not use the drugs. But don't pay attention to that. Just use it with somebody. Or this poster, don't be ashamed you are using. Be empowered that you are using safely. Oh, but the good thing is that they do tell you how to prevent overdose. Down in the bottom right corner, avoid using alone and take turns. Start with a small dose and go slowly. Avoid mixing drugs. Test your drugs using fentanyl test strips. Nowhere on that poster does it say don't use it. It's harmful and it'll kill you. Satan is using that same lie, except it's blatant now, no longer subtle. There's nothing wrong with anything that you do. It's wrong that people or God says it's wrong. Really, the fall comes immediately because Satan, uh, excuse me, Eve began listening to that lie and contemplating that lie. She should have said, I'm sorry, I don't know who you are and where you came from, but I'm not going to stand here in this garden talking to some reptile that's trying to undermine my trust in my God who I know is true and who loves me. That's what she should have said. You know who who did talk like that? (laughs) Jesus. When Satan came to him and tempted him, in every case he refused to let Satan impugn the character and the word of God, which is what all three of those temptations against Jesus intended to do. She should have said, I'm sorry, my God is not restrictive. My God is not limiting. My God is not trying to put me in bondage. My God does not withhold any true joy or any true delight. My God is good and only good and always good, and he's provided everything good for me. That's why we need to know the truth of God's word. But instead, she began to suspect in her mind that God was not all good because he was narrow-minded and restrictive because that's what Satan focused her on, and she bought into it. As soon as a person, whether it's Eve, whether it's you, whether it's me, as soon as we don't completely, wholeheartedly, unreservedly trust in the wisdom and goodness of God, we're in trouble. We've sinned. And she sinned, not when she ate. She sinned when she stopped believing God was good and only good. And then it followed that if there was a flaw in God's character, well, you can't really trust his word, right? All sin comes from distrusting God and distrusting his character. That's how it gains a foothold, and it begins to show up in verse 3 here in our passage. Eve begins by omitting the word all in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we, we may eat from, fruit from the trees in the garden. So where did the word all go to that God had put in there? But God did say, Eve says, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you'll die. There are two things that are happening here in that verse. Eve is already beginning to get drawn in by Satan and losing sight of the boundless, limitless goodness of God. She's not thinking about all the good trees. And then she goes to exaggeration as she adds that we can't even touch it. 
You won't find that in God's command back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. But that's part of the insidiousness of this temptation. It's exaggerated to make it sound as horrible as possible. In her mind, she's buying into the fact that God is harsh and he's restrictive. And she's beginning to convince herself that God is even harsher than she ever thought by exaggeration. And that's when the fall came. The first time she ever had a thought that God was not perfectly good, she fell. And the lie continues to be perpetuated today. If you're going to really find happiness and joy and fulfillment, you need to do it your way. You need to go for the gusto. That's an older, older one. You need to be all that you can be because God is narrow and limiting and restrictive. Well, Satan at this point knows he's succeeded. First, he introduced the fact that God was subject to judgment and that God's word was subject to discussion and an evaluation. Then he planted the idea that God can't be trusted. In fact, God is cruel. God is uncaring. And at this point, Martin Luther wrote, Satan knows now that the wall has begun to topple. So Satan started pushing against it so that it could completely crush Eve. Verse 4, You shall not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. No more subtleness. Blatant lie. Totally opposite from what God said. Satan lied, and in doing so, called God a liar. So what's going on in Eve's mind here? Really? God's not totally good? He's not totally caring? He's not even honest? God doesn't tell the truth? Satan is saying that God will deceive you. And God will harm you, and God will take your freedom, and God will restrict your joy, and He'll do it by telling you things that aren't true. And then God tells you that if you do the things He tells you not to do, you're going to die. He's just going to accuse, what's the word? Doesn't matter. Eve bought into it. (laughs) Where do you think the concept of reincarnation comes from? See, folks, the ultimate lie that Satan inculcates or instills or indoctrinates into mankind is this. There will never be any judgment to sin. You don't have to worry about that. You can do anything you want to. That's where that concept of incarnation came, uh, reincarnation excuse me, came from. Where do you think the concept of nirvana comes from? Where do you think the concept of eternity with 99 virgins comes from? No judgment. That's just a lie by a controlling, mean, and restrictive God. Satan says, don't worry about it. There are no divine laws. There's no absolute authority. There's no standard, no absolute truth. Your truth is what you make it to be. And there's no consequences. Then Satan goes a step further and says, and it's even worse than that. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like him. You'll be like God. He doesn't want that, knowing good and evil. Boy, that's a very intoxicating thought, isn't it? Who wouldn't want that? Wouldn't that be so good, so great? That's what Buddhism promises, a rebirth on earth as future Buddhas. 
That's what Mormonism promises, that we'll all become like gods. That's what a lot of false religions promises. You'll be like God. But as usual, if there is any modicum of truth in what Satan says, it's only half truth. To entice you away from the full truth. And that's exactly what he did. When you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And he was actually right about that in a horrible kind of way. She would know good and evil, but not in the way she thought, but in a way that she never, ever contemplated. She would know good and evil, and that was a deadly half-truth. If you go over to chap- uh, verse 22, later on in that same chapter, it says, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So, Satan was right, really? It did happen but not the way Eve was expecting. Satan said, you'll eat of the tree, you'll be like God, and that's where he was putting his emphasis, knowing good or evil. What he didn't say is that you won't be like God in your nature. You won't become God. Although that was the implication, and that's what was so enticing. What's the difference? The way God knows good and evil is the way a cancer surgeon knows cancer which is very different from the way a patient knows cancer. God is good, and he knows evil outside of himself. Eve knew good and evil inside now of herself. She knew the cancer as a victim, not as a physician. When she ate of the tree, as we'll see next time when we look at the seduction, she immediately knew good and evil because it became part of her nature. and Part of all of our nature. And you know, that's always been Satan's lie, to tell people that the forbidden fruit is a, is a doorway to true fulfillment. Total lie. James chapter 1, verse 15 tells us, After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. We'll be looking at that next week. We need to know, folks, we need to know the strategy of Satan. Not dwell on it. We need to know it. And we need to know the truth of God. Before we close in prayer, I feel that we need to wash our minds and refocus on a good, good Father. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. How abundant are the good things that you have stored up for those who fear you, that that you bestow in the sight of all on those who take refuge in you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His deeds. Splendid and majestic is His works and His righteousness endures forever. Wealth and riches are in His house and His righteousness endures forever. Because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Father, thank you.
that you are a good, good Father. Thank you that your word is truth. Thank you that we can stand on it. And Father, I pray that you would help each one of us gain a greater knowledge of your truth because Satan is subtle. He is crafty. He is smooth. And he, he, he argues your word with half-truths. And if we don't know what you have said, we can't argue back and it would just be so easy to slip into his temptations and, and his, his com- this conversation. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to stand. Stand on you. Stand on Christ. Stand on your word. The fact that you are a good, good father. In Jesus' name, amen.